1 Thessalonians, starting from chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will, with, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that, day to surprise, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for today. And we give you thanks that you are a God who speaks and gives us this word, a word to comfort and reassure. You gave this word to this church to comfort them. And through the generations, it has comforted many uh, millions of your people. So we pray, Father, that it would do the same today. That it not only would comfort us, but that we, as instructed, would take these words to encourage and comfort one another. So, Father... Bless this time together now. Help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For we ask this for your glory and our joy in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Back to the Future Part 2, Marty McFly travels from 1985 to 2015. It was actually rather funny what the late 80s imagined 2015 looked like. Uh, and he has to go to the future because he's got to save his future son from destroying the family. Now, while Marty McFly is there, he picks up a sports almanac detailing all the winners of major sporting events from 1950 to 2000. And since he's from the past and he's going back to the past, having saved the future, he figures that a bit of future knowledge would be helpful as he travels back to 1985 place a few bets here and there, and get a bit of extra money. The idea backfires, and then you actually get the rest of the movie. Now, the point of that scene is to say that if you know the future, then it will powerfully shape your present. 
you're going to do something about it, right? If you, if say 10 years ago, if say 10 years ago you knew what would happen to Bitcoin, oh, what happened there? Oh my, click is dying. All right, let's say you knew what happened to Bitcoin 10 years ago. I'm sure that you would jump at the chance to invest. Now, I'm not making any investment suggestions or giving any investment advice. This is not working either. There we go. Hopefully that'll keep working. All right. Now, again, I'm not making any investment suggestions or investment advice, uh, but I'm just saying that if you knew the future, if you know the future, it will powerfully shape your present. Now, this actually works in the negative as well. Fear is all future focused. Right? Fear is based on some future that we don't know, but we believe it to be true, and it powerfully shapes our present. Now, all of that to say, as we come to this passage this morning, uh, we are given one certain future, the return of Jesus. And the return of Jesus powerfully shapes our present. It gives hope to those grieving the loss of loved ones, and it motivates our godly living. Now, so far, Paul has uh, driven, uh, been driven by one big main concern, how this church is going. Right? Remember, he planted this church back in Acts chapter 17, but then he had to disappear quickly because of persecution. He was only with them for a short time that he wondered how they were faring, and so he sent Timothy to them to bring back news. And the news he brought back was generally really encouraging. They longed to see Paul, and they were standing firm in their faith. Now, last week, Paul started giving them instructions on how they should continue to stand firm. And in today's passage, he turns to a crucial issue. There are two primary pastoral concerns that drive our passage today, the issue of death and the timing of the second coming of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul was able or unable to teach them in such a short time that he had with them, but we do know that in leaving quickly, he he didn't give them the full picture. And so he sent Timothy, who reported back, and the first issue for today is that the church seemed to be struggling with the death of some of their beloved brothers and sisters. You'll notice that in the first part of our passage that those who have died are referred to as being asleep. This is not going to work for me today. There we go. Sleep. Sleep is commonly used, uh, commonly used metaphor for death uh, in the Bible. It's not so much about whether you are conscious or unconscious or not in death, uh, but more about uh, the expectation that you normally have when you see someone who is asleep, right, that they will eventually wake up. Now, remember how when Jesus went to Jairus to heal his sick daughter, He's going along the way, and then a servant comes and says, she's died. But when Jesus arrives at the home, he says, she is not dead, but sleeping. To Jesus, she was merely asleep because he was going to wake her up. The issue here in Thessalonica was that some in the church had died, and the Thessalonians weren't sure what would happen to them. And so Paul says three things to bring them comfort. Three things that he wants to give them so that they will not be uninformed and not grieve like their non-believing neighbors. Uh, Death in the time of Paul and and the time of Jesus in that world was a very pessimistic affair. 
uh, death was the end of everything. We know of a, a headstone, one particular headstone in Ankara, Turkey, for a 13-year-old girl that just simply reads, be of good cheer, sweetest child. No one is immortal. Oh, that sort of view was actually quite common. Gravestones and epitaphs were, to dead ones were dreadfully gloomy. So Paul writes to them. He doesn't want to, them to think of death in the same way. Death still causes grief, but for Christians, that grief is saturated with hope. So the first of the three points that Paul makes is about the gospel. The first source of comfort for them is a big reminder of their gospel hope in verse 14. Read it with me again, because it's not just that Jesus died and rose again. We need to notice there's some extra bits in here that he connects for them. Have a look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, have a look at the way that Paul's constructed that sentence and why it's a source of hope. He begins with, since we believe. He reminds them of the gospel that they trusted, right? They, they came to believe that Jesus died and rose again. And in so doing, they turned away from worshipping idols and worshipping Jesus. But notice that he connects that thought with the second half of the verse. Since we believe, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen. He's, he's saying this, because we trust Jesus... We also believe that through Jesus, God will raise up with Jesus those who have died. How are those who have died raised to life again? Paul says, through Jesus. This is what we call union with Christ. A crucial and fundamental aspect of your identity in this life and in eternity. This is what a Christian is at the most basic level. A Christian is someone who is united with Jesus. Uh, we don't just have faith that something happened 2,000 years ago. Our faith links us to Jesus in a mystical way. Uh, think of it this way, right? Your relationship with Jesus is very much like your relationship with a plane, okay? Uh, say you need to get to Sydney by tomorrow morning. Uh, what would you do? Right? Well, you could go to the airport and you could look as the plane takes off and you could try and just kind of follow its general direction south and then start walking that way. Right? And, you know, we would, that would be like, in us, like to us how we would say that we follow Jesus. Or you could get out on the runway, spread your arms and start imitating a plane. Right? Start making engine noises and take off and spread your arms out like the wings and try to fly to Sydney, which would be kind of like how we say we imitate Jesus. But the most obvious thing to do would be to get on board the plane, right? sit inside of it, and then whatever happens to the plane happens to you. That is what union with Christ is like. And that is why a Christian isn't just someone who follows Jesus or imitates Jesus, though those are good things. A Christian is someone who is united to Jesus. And so that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Now, the point of this is a point of comfort that Paul is making. He's saying that Jesus' death and resurrection means that those who have died will surely rise with Jesus. As Jesus is raised from the dead so are those who have died trusting Jesus. 
The second point of comfort from Paul uh, that Paul makes uh, is that he is given a special word from God to them, uh, from Jesus. You can see in verse 15 that he says a special word from Jesus is given to him. Uh, We'll get into the details of what that special word is in for a second, but focus here first on this particular comfort, this special comfort, a particular word from Jesus to this church. As an apostle, right, Paul would have received special uh, prophetic revelations from Jesus. This doesn't make it necessarily a gift or event that all Christians should necessarily expect to receive. But in this case, it was a special word of comfort for this church and for every generation of Christian who has read these words in the centuries that followed. Paul says that those alive at the coming of Jesus will not precede those who have died. He says that the dead will not miss out. As he will say down in verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And he says this on the authority of the word given to him by Jesus. This is a a particularly special comfort for them, a profound grace of Jesus that he gives to this infant church, a special word of comfort. Jesus knows the needs of his church. And this, in this early first century setting, they needed more information, which Jesus happily obliges for their comfort and reassurance. The third point of comfort uh, comes uh, as uh, the third point of comfort comes as Paul expands on this special word about the dead rising first. Uh, Paul goes on to say that the return of Jesus will be super obvious, right? The language in verses 16 and 17 echoes uh, some of Jesus' own words through the gospel. So it's not new in that sense. Yet, again, what Paul says here isn't the complete picture of the end. There are are some details that Jesus spoke about that Paul does leave out as well. And, And as with many references to the final day of judgment, there is heavy use of what we call apocalyptic language, like lots of imagery uh, and Old Testament references and pictures that we need to be very careful to not read too literally. So in order to work out what Paul is saying, it'd be helpful to keep in mind other parts of the New Testament uh, about what what it says about the end. But let's read these verses, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul begins here in verse 16 with three bellowing sounds, three reverberating signals that Jesus has arrived. The first is the cry of command. The second is the voice of an archangel. The third is the sound of the trumpet of God. It is an unmistakable moment. And then at the end of verse 16, Paul says that at this moment, the dead will rise first. This is the privilege of having persevered in Jesus to the end of their lives. Now, being raised here, is most likely a reference to physical resurrection, the physical resurrection to new bodies, right? We know that in other parts of the New Testament that those who die enjoy consciousness after death, right? So the thief on the cross is promised paradise today with Jesus. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus indicate an experience of conscious life after death. So here in 1 Thessalonians, I don't think we're meant to think of people who are just kind of merely unconscious, 
and then waking up for the first time, uh, waking up with this kind of first conscious moment. And then in verse 17, what happens next? Right, the dead rise first, and those who are alive are caught up together, rising to meet with Jesus in the air. Now, at this point, I need to take a little bit of a digression uh, and address something that you may or may not be aware of about this little verse. Verse 17 is often used in what we call rapture theology. Right? You may have heard of the rapture, the idea being that Jesus will return to earth at some point and secretly rapture away believers, leaving everyone else behind. They are taken to, with him to be in heaven, waiting for uh, the final judgment some years later. Now, the theology, this theology was actually made very popular by these fictional books uh, and movie series called Left Behind, right? I want to argue that this passage is not teaching a rapture theology for a secret rapture for two reasons. Not teaching a secret rapture for two reasons. First, the context. Verse 17 starts with the word then, and that means that when believers rise to meet with Jesus in the air, it happens after a super obvious announcement of his return. The cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the blast of the trumpet. The return of Jesus will not be a secret. Second, the second reason that I don't think this is teaching a secret rapture is because of the word meet there in verse 17. The word meet is used a few other times in the New Testament, and there it always means to meet with and then usher back. So in Matthew 25, the, the virgins meet uh, the bridegroom, and then they walk him back to the feast. In, in Acts 28, Roman Christians meet with Paul outside of Rome, and then they walk him back into Rome. The word meet here in 1 Thessalonians, I think, is best read to mean that believers will rise to meet with Jesus and then usher him to earth to begin the day of judgment. So I do think the left-behind theology is very unhelpful. Uh, to summarize, though, Paul's point isn't to make any particularly definitive statement about what happens at the end of time. The point he makes is that when Jesus obviously returns, Christians who have died will be physically raised to be with him forever. Now, all of this is said for the purpose of comfort. Paul wants to comfort and reassure them. And then he wants them to take these words and encourage each other with them in verse 18. So in a time of grief, for them came these words of hope. They were mourning the death of their loved ones, and Paul gave them real hope. The foundation of that hope was in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and their hope looked forward to the return of Jesus. It is the knowledge of this future that should powerfully shape their present. Encourage each other with these words. Now, let's be clear on this. Paul is not saying that Christians do not grieve but we can grieve with hope. It is a unique part of the Christian faith uh, that death is still painful. It's the tearing asunder of a relationship. It's the, the physical separation of two loved ones. And that causes deep sadness and grief. And yet, at the same time, we know that Jesus has died and risen again. He has defeated sin and death, and so there is hope that those who trust and follow Jesus will rise with him. The hope we have in our grief is a hope that death does not have the last word. In Paul's time, remember, death 
was viewed very pessimistically. But Christian death is painted with optimism, even though it is shaded with grief. So we are to encourage each other with these ideas and principles. And friends, the best time to prepare a foundation of hope and grief is in times of sunshine, not in times of rain. There's a block of land a couple of doors down from me, which has finally been sold and is now being developed. A house is being built, and builders came through a few weeks ago, flattened the land, preparing for the cement foundation. But then over the last few weeks, it's just been raining a lot. They can't come and do any of that work. Finally, though, with the sunshine coming out in the last few weeks, they laid the foundation on Friday. Rainy weather is not the time to lay a foundation. The same with our lives. When times are good, when death's dark shadow does not loom so near, that is the time we encourage and build these critical foundations of hope. But when grief comes, and it will, that is not necessarily the time to just then pull out these words from Paul and throw them around. That can come across as insensitive and insensitive and uncaring. It is in those times that our encouragement of each other won't just be in words, but it will be in words lived out in action, in weeping with those who weep, in entering into that space of pain and loss and sadness and tears, to be a friend, a brother, a sister, to be someone they can walk with through the valley of the shadow of death. And we'll need the encouragement and the reminders and loving actions because we need to prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus. In 5.1, Paul begins a new thread. Uh, you'll notice that, uh, though it's related to the previous, he, he begins with the words, now concerning. And you'll often find that phrase popping up quite a lot through Paul's letters. Uh, you'll see it quite a fair bit in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And he does that to introduce a new theme or idea that he needs to answer or, or tackle. Now concerning, he begins, the times and the seasons. They were asking Paul about the specific timing of Jesus' returns. And unfortunately for us reading it today, Paul doesn't actually give much information. He simply says that they don't need to be told anything. They already know what he knows, and that should be enough. All right? would, it would have been handy for Paul to spell it out today, but oh well. And so, what do they know? Have a look at verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief, a, a robber. You can guess the, that, that picture is actually quite negative. Any, anyone who has had their house or their home broken into knows the scary and icky feeling of it. Right? The point of this picture is to highlight how unexpected that day will be. Like a thief. Right? Thieves do not announce their plans beforehand. But no one, expects, no one expects to leave their home for the day and then come home to a place that's been broken into. The idea of unexpectedness comes up again in verse 3, right? The people here being non-believers, right? They continue in their lives thinking that they live in a time of peace and security when everything is fine and the world is good, right? And then sudden destruction comes upon them. The second coming of Jesus is not good news for our unbelieving world. Jesus comes to upend everything. He will come as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. It's sudden It's painful. Uh, Here is no picture of birth, which gives relief and joy, but again, another emphasis on the sudden pain of the moment. And in horror, we read at the end of verse 4 that they will not escape. 
There is nowhere to run and hide from Jesus. The timing of when Jesus returns is not known. So we should not speculate or draw diagrams or try to pin down the date. But what is known is that Jesus will come back and his return will be an utter surprise to our unbelieving world. They will be completely unprepared. Their lack of knowledge about the future is making them profoundly unprepared in the present. And then in verse 4, Paul says, but. It's a small little word, but a big contrasting idea is being made here. Christians, but Christians are not like the unbelieving world. Christians will not be taken by surprise. They shouldn't be. From verse 5 onwards, Paul makes the point that Christians are to be different, radically different from the world. And to do so, he uses quite a few metaphors that might seem a little confusing because a lot of, some of the wording overlaps. But up on the screen here, uh, I've put them all down so you can see the point of the contrast. Child, got Christians are children of the light. Non-Christians, he says, are children of darkness. Christians are children of the day. Non-Christians are children of the night. Christians are to remain sober and awake. Non-Christians get drunk and sleep. Now, the word sleep there is actually different to the word asleep uh, that we've read so far. Sleep here means to be inactive, unaware, not paying attention for the second coming. Right? When Paul refers to people who are asleep, he's referring to those who have died. And finally, Christians obtain salvation, whereas non-Christians are destined for wrath. So you can see the contrast is super clear. Christians are to be radically different from the unbelieving world. And the radical difference is shaped by the second coming. Christians know what the future holds, and that powerfully shapes their present. Our fundamental identity is summarized in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. We belong to the day. Right? Do, we do not belong to ourselves. We do not belong to others and their expectations and opinions of us. We belong to Jesus. He is the one who, is, who fundamentally shapes who we are. And as those who belong to Jesus, we also wear his armor. You look in verse 8, it's sort of a mini Ephesians 6 armor of God. Paul is actually drawing on an image from Isaiah 59 where God is pictured as a warrior dressed in armor. And the armor here in 1 Thessalonians reflects that. It is God's armor. We are wearing hand-me-downs dressed in like our big brother Jesus, ready for spiritual battle, motivated by our eternal destiny as those who obtain salvation. And so in verse 10, whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or we have died in Christ, we live with Jesus. Our eternal security is locked in because we are united with Jesus. The way we live today is shaped by what we understand about Jesus' second coming. As you've heard multiple times so far, if you know the future, it will powerfully shape your present. So then keep awake and sober. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure, maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, but this is something you haven't really owned for yourself. Can I ask you, how how have you been finding this sermon so far? Is it a bit full-on, a bit doom and gloom? As I think about the past few years at our church, as we've been walking through the Bible in in different uh, sections in the Old Testament, New Testament, I can't help but notice that judgment is such a big theme that we've touched on again and again. 
So I want to say to you this morning that if you're not a Christian, I understand if it feels like this is really full on. But can I say, it's not just simply Ben or I who have been preaching judgment. It's the Bible. We've been constantly reminded that this life is not the final stop. This life is meant to be a rehearsal for what is to come. The Bible speaks about judgment so much because it wants to impress on us how weighty this issue is. It warns us that it is a terrible thing to fall under God's judgment, and it wants to expose us to the reality that our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of God is intensely offensive to Him. The God who made us, who loves us, who is the source of all good things, when we reject Him, that is not a small thing. So I do want to ask, how prepared are you for the second coming? How do you know that He's coming back? How do we know that He's coming back? The answer to that is the key to that answer is the resurrection of Jesus. So everything Jesus said about him being God's king, everything he said about his future return, all hangs on the empty tomb. So can I ask you, what explanation do you have for the empty tomb? If you didn't know, I grew up in a Buddhist family. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I grew up in a Buddhist family. I became a Christian uh, in early uni. Uh, but at the end of high school and into early university, I was actually getting deeper and deeper into Buddhism, into the faith of my uh, childhood, learning about it, trying to live it out. And so when a friend sat down with me to chat about Jesus, I started to realize, I started reading up on the reliability of the New Testament, uh, on how Jesus died, and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus. I became a Christian because I realized I had no viable alternative explanation for the empty tomb. I realized that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And if he did, then everything he said about himself and about his future coming, well, not only is it true, but I had to do something about it. So I want to ask you, how about you? What explanation do you have for Jesus' empty tomb? Because if Jesus is really raised from the dead, then he really will come back again. He really will come back again soon to close up human, human history. So I want to invite you to humbly investigate Jesus, because only by trusting Jesus can you become awake and sober and properly ready for his return. The passage today is giving us a picture of that future. Let that future powerfully shape your present actions. So it brings me to the Christians in the room. Let me ask you, how prepared are you for the second coming of Jesus? How sober and awake are you? Being sober is more than just not being drunk. Remember in verse 9, it's about faith, love, and hope. Faith, the, the Bible's word for trusting and believing God at His word. We build our faith by reading the Bible and studying the Bible, and we express our humble faith in daily prayers, expressing our need for and reliance on God. 
love, to, to love God and, and love His people, to express our deep affection for God and joyfully orient our lives around pleasing Him. It's also to express our affection for each other and to desire each other's good. Hope, and finally hope, hope of salvation. Hope that is a grounded vision of the future built on the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. Hope guards against living for this world, living in darkness and in drunkenness. Hope keeps us awake and alert. To get a picture of faith, love, and hope, uh, in action, uh, let me uh, mix up some metaphors that we've heard this morning. So let's go back to this, this picture of the thief. So imagine for a moment that you actually do receive knowledge that a thief is at some point in the near future going to come and try and break into your house. You know it's going to happen. They're aiming at your most valuable possession, your most prized possession at home, your, your spouse, your children, your coffee machine, right? <laughs> whatever it is. Right? You don't know when they are coming, but you know for sure that they are coming. What would you do with that information? First, you would be awake and sober. Right? You would be prepared for their coming. You wouldn't just be having a drinking party every night. You, you'd be, you'd improve the security around your home. You install some security cameras. You'd check and recheck the locks and the, the windows and the doors. Make sure everything is secure. Maybe you'd buy a baseball bat for protection. Right? You'd show love to your family. You'd gather them closer together for safety, or you would warn them and send them off somewhere else safe. You'd do this out of love for them. You'd call the police, and you would trust them, and then you'd have faith that they would come and protect you. Right? And then you would wait with hope for them to arrive. See, if you know the future, it will powerfully shape your present reality. So let us carry on in faith, hope, and love as we wait for the return of Jesus. Someone who is properly awake and sober will be doing all three, faith, hope, and love. And we, we can't do it alone. We, we don't do it alone in isolation. We need each other, which is why Paul gives these two instructions at the end of each section. Encourage each other and build each other up with these words. Right? We need each other to encourage each other, to be encouraged, to build each other up so that we will not be unprepared for when Jesus returns. As a story of encouragement, some of you know that I am deathly allergic to running. Right? I tried it a few years ago. Andrew Chin and a few others would help me come along for these jogs around the streets of Chapel Hill. Now, Chapel Hill is called Chapel Hill because it's a suburb full of hills. <laughs> One hill in particular was a favorite of theirs on their jogging route, Greenford Street. And let me tell you, it starts off super flat. It's totally deceiving. It's like flat for hundreds of meters, and it completely lulls you into a false sense of security that you're fine. And then you turn one corner, and you're greeted with the steepest and the highest hill in Chapel Hill, right? The incline, I think, the gradient incline is around 80 or 90 degrees. <laughs> and if I could guess, it rises about 15 kilometers into the air. That's what it feels like. And so you start jogging up, and cars drive past, and they're laughing at you. And uh, as in, in one of this, this time of like, learning to jog, 
um, one of my friends, Terence, was jogging with me. And he hears, uh, uh, he, he's so much more fit, and he's running up, and he's actually running up the street and then back to where I'm slowly jogging along and giving me lots of encouragement, and, which is actually rather discouraging. Um, <laughs> so we hit this hill on Greenford Street, and I'm struggling, and he's next to me, and he says, don't walk, Steve, don't walk, just keep jogging. And actually, at the top of the hill, there is some, someone uh, owns a boat, and it's, it's just kind of parked it right there on the street. And it's kind of like, it's like the marker point. It's like the finishing point at the top of the hill. And so as I'm jogging along slowly with cars laughing as they drive past, Terence is jogging up and down, and he just says to me, Steve, get to the boat. Get to the boat, and then you can rest. Don't stop. Get to the boat. I got to the boat. Alive, not asleep. That's why we need each other, to encourage and build each other up. Jesus hasn't returned yet, and so we need each other to keep pushing each other on these things. Just get to the boat, everyone. Just get to the boat. Don't rest now. Keep pushing on in faith, hope, and love. Then when Jesus returns, we can rest. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you give us this word of comfort. And for some of us this morning, a word of challenge. So help us to take up this word. Help us to see the future reality that is there. And may that future powerfully shape our present. For some of us here, Father, we may need to do business with you as we reckon with the fact that there is an empty tomb that your son is indeed risen from the dead and he will come to return in judgment. Some of us need to do business so that when he does arrive, we will not, they will not be taken by surprise. Heavenly Father, for the rest of us, we pray that we too would look on this word and be comforted, that we would be comforted in our grief and that we would be prepared and sober and awake for the return of Jesus. Help us encourage each other with these words that none of us may be unprepared at that day. For we ask this for your glory and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen.